Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we're rewinding about four years back to October the 28th, 2013. So like one, four years in one day, uh, almost precisely. And I, you know, I did the ballistics, uh, rewind recently. I thought this would be a good one. This is fun, cheap, and easy gun projects and tricks. Now, let me start out with why I'm doing a rewind today. You might think Jack's voice sounds better than last week. It does. Um, but I had a rough night sleeping last night, a lot of coughing and stuff, sinus drainage, you know, stuff you really don't want to know about. But um, my voice is on therapy right now and uh, this new throat spray and some hot tea and all. So it'll work, but it'll fade. And I know if I try to do an hour and a half show today, then by the end of it, I'll be like this. And I I don't want to do that. Um, the Tuesday show I did last week, my, my immediate thought when I finished that was I, I hope no one listened to... That show is their first show, and and I don't want to put out content like that. So that's that's part of the why. Uh, I just need more recovery time. I do have some stuff I want to give you before this show starts, though. Uh, some updates about the show itself and some updates about things in general. Number one, I just put out a blog post right before I hit record on this. Um, there are two seats open to the fall workshop. Uh, the workshop dates are, let me make sure I don't say this wrong and scare some, I'm not, I'm not so worried about screwing it up, but somebody listening to it go, I thought it was, you know, that people that are coming anyway. Um, it is the 9th, 10th and 11th is the classes. That's a Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Most students show up Wednesday afternoon. I think two o'clock is the time I say like, don't show up before two o'clock, but I'll help. No, you won't. <laughs> Please show up after two. That, that, and it's in the instructions and all. That helps us be ready when people start showing up. Uh, there's a lot of things we're doing last minute at that point, but people show up around two on Wednesday, can show up as late as they want to pretty much. Um, Nick and David get you parked and we kind of hang out and have like social, I call it social hour, but it's like social hours. Uh, I throw on some broads and stuff like that. It's just a hangout night. And then classes begin Thursday morning and uh, we do Thursday, Friday, Saturday and you stay, oh, most people stay overnight Saturday because, you know, there's imbibing and drinking and the best meal is always the last meal and, Things like that, so it's easier to crash in your uh, tent or whatever and leave in the morning. We ask all students to be off the property by 11 a.m. So that's that's the schedule. So again, it is the 8th through the 12th when you look at it that way. Uh, price is 500 bucks with a $100 deposit. Because we're within two weeks and it's kind of a last-minute thing, I'm willing to work with people on payment terms. I would be willing to do a $100 deposit, 200 on arrival, and 200 before the end of the year. Uh, if I can sell these spots, the people that had to cancel, I'll give them their deposit back. If I can't sell these spots last minute, uh, I retain the deposit because I've made the investment in the food and everything at this point. So that I try to be really fair with my refund programs, and I usually let people that you know end up in the situation apply that deposit if they don't get it back to a future event. So anyway, it's available. Uh, again, I know it's only a couple weeks out at this point. Trust me, I know it's only a couple weeks out at this point. Uh, we spent all weekend working on stuff for this. I cooked uh, 33 pounds of uh, grass-fed pot roast uh, for the, the, the Friday meal. It's also going to have smoked turkey and duck sausage. So i got a lot to do yet. Anyway, just wanted to put that out there. Uh, the next thing is I wanted to remind you guys about the Quail Tracker Project. 
So Brad Davies and uh, Steve Larkin and I have, have worked two years on this uh, product called the Quail Tracker. And uh, it's, a, it's a great system. I know it might be expensive with shipping and all for some people to make the investment in uh, right now during the Kickstarter. The good news is the Kickstarter has funded. It was $5,000. We were within a couple hundred bucks of $8,000 when I checked this morning. We still have seven days to go. I posted about it in uh, over the weekend. And I will put a link in today's show notes for today's Rewind where you can learn about the Kickstarter. I wanted to point something out that I guess some of you may not realize when if you haven't gone and looked at it. You don't have to buy the, the whole product. We actually have some perks that are from like a dollar to twenty dollars that have a lot of really great options. And one at twenty bucks is you get an ebook written by Brad Davies, a one hour webinar produced by Brad Davies, and plans on how to build your own quail tracker. The dimensions, everything is available online download. And it's not just the tracker, it's the compost cage, the coop, everything. So you can have all of our plans. We've basically open sourced the design. So if you just want to buy like the how-to and the plans, you get that for 20 bucks and support our Kickstarter. So I wanted to let you know about that. Uh, and then our T-SPAS item of the day today, while I, I make these as commercial-free as I can, I do want to remind you about you do your online shopping at tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop, let's say, on Amazon. You help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do no matter what you buy. And I have reviews every day. Today's is Maldon Sea Salt. I brought this to you first uh, back in, when was it, February? Uh, March, early March of this year. Uh, Maldon Sea Salt is pretty cool stuff, guys. It is like, uh, it's flaky. It's like these little pyramid-shaped crackly, beautiful things of salt. I don't, I don't know how they make this stuff, but it's like a little pyramid. And it's, it's expensive for salt. It's not really expensive, but for salt it's expensive. But I used it as a finishing salt, like on top of sautéed vegetables, on top of the steak, whatever. I don't cook with it because it's, it, it's still just salt. But when you put it on top of something and when you eat it and you get those little bits of salt and it crunches, it's, it's freaking amazing. And in the review I mentioned the uh, smoked version. I've tried that. That's fantastic too. The smoke is better. I need to do a standalone review for the smoke stuff. Um, but uh, definitely check it out. It's called Mal Maladon. So it's, it's actually Maldon, M-A-L-D-O-N, Maldon Sea Salt. And uh, it, it's cool stuff. And if you don't want to get this on Amazon, you probably can find this in most grocery stores in the, where the salt is. Uh, it'll be like down low or somewhere kind of obscure. Uh, but again, Maldon, M-A-L-D-O-N. And again, it, guys, if you shop on T-Spaz, You help me. And it doesn't cost you any more money because of stuff you're going to buy anyway, unless it's the item of the day stuff, which is always something cooler. I wouldn't review it. Okay, so uh, some updates on today's show. Primarily, I wanted to focus on um, the NDF, NEF handy rifle content. Everything I say about the NEF handy rifles, as far as the guns themselves and the projects you can do with them, is still true. There's two things that have changed. One is significant. One's rather insignificant. The significant one is NEF, H&R, which was acquired by Marlin Firearms, used to have a barrel accessory program. And what that meant is you could buy an NEF handy rifle, let's say in 3006, and decide, I would like to have a .223 barrel for this. And you could send them your frame, and they would fit a .223 barrel to it and send it back to you, and you swap these barrels out in a matter of about 10 seconds. They've discontinued that program. There are guns out there that people have done this with. You can find on the secondary market for sale with multiple barrels. The problem with the NEF handy rifle is it's not like Thompson Center. 
the receivers are not machined to such a tolerance that like you can just get a barrel and throw it on there. It might work and it might not. I've seen some that it seems to work fine, and I've seen some that when you take a barrel from one frame and put it on another, you can literally move it, which that's not gases in the face, bad, evil, not good, right? So that's why they had the accessory program the way they did. You had to send your frame in, and they usually had it for three or four weeks, because they had to custom fit a barrel back onto it and make sure it was properly locking up. That's not available anymore. So what that means is if you can find somebody that has a frame with like three barrels, they're kind of selling out of premium now compared to the way they used to be. But the guns themselves are still dirt cheap. They're only a couple hundred and fifty dollars brand new. So they're still a great thing to play with and tinker with and a great thing to look for, you know, used on that secondary market as well. So uh, definitely something you can still mess with. Um, but just, yeah, the barrel accessory program is gone. The next is on the same gun. Uh, the NEF uh, handy rifles... Um, list that I have a link to on Yahoo Groups. Um, Yahoo Groups in general has declined over time as things like Facebook and Twitter have taken over the internet over forums and, and news list groups. We still use a Yahoo group for the uh, workshops, but that pretty much gets used around the time of the workshops and as a way to get in touch with everybody that's ever been to a workshop. It's one of the perks of coming. You get you know, you be alumni and uh, you, you get access to that uh, you know students-only list. And the NEF list just, I mean, I, I mentioned in today's episode that I was a member of that list for so long. The email address that I was registered with when I signed up originally, I had to change because the email stopped coming, was an AOL email address. Yeah, it was jjspeargo at AOL.com. That email goes nowhere now, don't use it. Um, so it's, it's, it's been around a while. And given that it's been around that long, pretty much everything that can be discussed has been discussed many times. And it just died. It's there. If you send a, an email to it or post to it directly, it will work. Some people will see it, but it just, it lost its mojo, so to say. But it is still just like the repository of knowledge for any FHR single shot rifles and shotguns. It is a fantastic resource. Just don't expect to get a lot of interaction. I mentioned sharing tools and stuff like that. All of that kind of activity has kind of just fallen off the uh, radar but it's like i said it's still there it's still publicly accessible and you can learn a lot about these guns now real quick and you can hear my voice beginning to fade i'm gonna pause here and uh get some uh, tea and this this really sucks guys I, every year you know this time of year um anyway the reason i chose this for today i, I just started looking through about the same time frame in past years and i started with four years back and found this one right away I thought this is a fantastic topic for right now because here's what I think is going on for many of you on your homesteads. If you're like me, right now you're still busy as shit, right? But right about the that's why we do the workshops when we do. Right about the time we do the workshops, like second, third week in November, somewhere in that time frame, people begin like a slowing down process. We kind of coast into the holidays. And then if we're raising meat animals, they're done for the year. If we were raising chicks, they're long since done. The harvest is done. The, uh, the canning is done. Usually a lot of the hunting is done, you know, by, by that time. Or maybe you've got hunting still to do, but the, the initial, like, big push is done. A lot of stuff's put up, and you can kind of relax. And a lot of times people take time off and stuff. Like, this is a good time to do some of these projects. Like, especially you guys that have, like, man, if, you know, if my son was like 
10 again, 11, 12 again. And when my grandson's just a little bit older, and I don't want to take anything from my what my son does with them too, regards to guns, but man, I would go out and I'm going to be looking every gun show I go to uh, from now on. I'm going to be looking for that old 410 or that old 20 gauge single shot that's just rusted to shit. They just look somebody crapped on it. If I have to, I will buy a bet a good one and I will make it look like crap just so we can do it together. And I'm going to take that with my grandson and we're going to take that thing apart and learn everything about it. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna clean it up. We're gonna get the rust off it. We're gonna touch the blueing up. We're gonna do the project that you hear me lead off today's thing with as a first project. That's gonna happen. And if my son was that age again, we would do it again. And <clears throat> this is a great time to be finding that project for the winner. Maybe a couple of them. So kind of be thinking about that. There's a lot of cool stuff in today's show. It was very well, well received when I put it out. And. Uh, Let's take you back now. Again, we are going back to uh, October 28th, 2013, four years and one day, two days ago. Four years and two days ago, episode 1235, originally fun, cheap, and easy gun projects and tricks. So with that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. Um, again, fun, easy, cheap things you can do with uh, guns. And maybe acquiring new guns or new old guns and things like that. The easiest money saver that I know, and this is like one that people usually cut their teeth on, is getting an old break action shotgun. A single shot, NEF, uh, H&R are generally the most common that people find. These are guns that sell for under $100 off and brand new in the box. So used ones are sitting out there at the $50 and below price point all the time. Though I've seen the prices on the old beat-up ones, <clears throat> which are no different uh, in many instances than the new ones, start to go up to and even above the price of the, the new ones. But generally speaking, the guy selling it will drop the price like that if you haggle a little bit. Say, look, this gun's like $85 bucks brand new. Right? This is used, it's rusted, it's dinged up. I'll give you 50 bucks for it. Usually that gun's sold pretty quick if you do that, with one exception. The gun show loophole. That's right. If, the, if it's sitting on the table of a private seller, they, they often know that people will pay a little bit of a premium for a gun to not do paperwork and have true private ownership of a weapon. So that, that would be the one exception. But, you know, all the guys on, on tables that are, you know, dealers for a living, you'll find they'll deal on those guns. But it's not just the NEFs and the H&Rs and the kind of busted-up-looking ones or rusted-up-looking ones that you can get deals on. I was at a gun store not too long ago up in uh, Plano, Texas. I think it's called the Bullet Trap. I don't remember if that was the one I was at or not. But this guy had tons of used guns, including, like, I I'm almost still kicking myself for not buying it, a really nice, older, 20-gauge, side-by-side double barrel that he wanted about 200 bucks for. It wasn't even beat up. It just could have looked better. So... With these, you know, break action shotguns, single and double action or double barrel shotguns, generally speaking, there's a lot of them out there that don't look that great. And some are just beat up and some are just old and some are just, they could look better. And what makes them such a target for kind of entry level tinkering with guns is they can be disassembled with a screwdriver, uh, sometimes a socket. You need a socket wrench or something like that on some of them. Uh, but it's easy hand tools that most people have. You can remove the stock, the forearm, and take the barrel and action apart. And generally, even if you've never seen the gun before, if you have a working understanding of like basic 
mechanics. If you can put round pegs into round holes instead of round pegs into square holes, if you can pass that test, you can probably figure it out. Hold on, I'm going to stop right now. I'm going to do this once. Whenever handling any firearm, please make sure that it's not loaded by clearing it multiple times, always pointing in a safe direction, and even after you've ensured that it's not loaded, treating it at all times as though it were loaded, never pointing at anything you would not intend to destroy. Okay? One warning, one warning only, we're all adults going forward now. You can figure out how to disassemble these shotguns quickly and easily. Generally speaking, they're pretty easy to strip off whatever finishes on the stocks. A lot of the older ones have really nice pieces of wood underneath that grit and grime. They can easily be stripped and refinished. Uh, if the barrels are, you know, worn a bit, a little bit of steel wool and some uh, WD-40, and uh, you can take surface rust off them as long as they're not deep rusted. A little bit of a product by a company called Birchwood Casey, called Permablue, We'll touch up the places where the bluing's off on them. And to do that, I like to use their paste. Uh, they make it in a paste and a liquid and the paste. And I don't generally refinish the whole thing. I just, you know, give it a little bit on those areas and I don't try to make it look brand new. I just try to, you know, those places where it's down to bare metal, you know, give it a little bit of protection with bluing, give it a nice oiling, refinish the stock, put it back together and you have a gun that looks brand new. Or if you do it the right way, looks like a really care, well cared for old gun which a lot of times with these types of projects is more what people are doing. There's some things that will help you do that better. Okay, The first thing that most people do wrong when they're refinishing one of these guns is a lot of them are made with fine grain woods, maple, birch, etc., instead of old walnut. So they're a light-colored wood. So what they do is they strip it down with sandpaper. Fine. There's other ways to do that, though, to accelerate your stripping down. Um, I'll talk about that in a bit, but you strip it down. That's fine. But then they start refinishing it, and they want to finish it like a cabinet maker. So they get down there with their 80 or 60 grit and take off that top layer, taking as little wood off as they can, but getting down to the base wood. And they come in there with their 120. And then they come in there with their 220. And they get that thing just smoother than a baby's butt. And then they take the double old steel wool, and they just make that thing so you feel it. It feels like it's coated in talco powder. It's so smooth. And then they take a deep, dark walnut stain to make it have that old, dark look. And they stain it, and it just doesn't take the stain up very well. And because they finished it so well, it stains very uniform. So it stains light and very uniform. It doesn't show its grain very well and things like that. Maple especially is hard to get stain into as it is. And when you finish it like that, it almost sits on the top. So what you can do is go ahead and take and strip it down. And again, I'll give you another way you can strip a lot of, lot of uh, finish off of uh, guns uh, with a, a very cheap store product in just a second um, without doing much sanding in many instances. But take it, take it down to the bare wood or, as, you know, sometimes you don't have to sand down to the bare wood. You just have to get like that outer, you know, coating off and get, get it most. And leaving a little bit of the old stain is fine, as long as it's not a painted stock. Many of the newer guns are painted, not stained. And then you want to get that paint off. But, you know, get it down with that coarse sandpaper, that 60 or 80 grit, and then maybe lightly sand it with that 120, but really, really lightly. Just take some of the big scratches and all out of it. Maybe even leave a few. And then go put your, your stain on. And the wood will be much more open, and the pores will be much more open, and it will suck the stain. And if you want it nice and smooth thereafter, stain it two or three times, get it a little darker than maybe even than you want it, 
and then go back over with the 120 and then go to your really fine, your 220 and maybe even your steel wool before you put the finish on it. All right. For stripping guns, a lot of times the, the stocks will strip very well if you hang them up and spray them with easy off oven cleaner. Uh, this is great for surplus weapons, but many times it'll strip off a lot of finish for you and it won't hurt anything. Once you're done rinsing it off, um, you know, you're, you're good to go. It's going to be wet, hang up and let it dry before you go forward with your finishing project. Uh, though sometimes, uh, wood that's a little bit wet, will kind of stand up. There's a couple things you can do that. If it has a deep pit in the wood and you wet it, the wood will swell, and when you sand it, it will remove some of your pits and scratches and marks if you want to. The other thing is wood that's a little bit wet and rough sanded will really open up. And if you let it dry till it's, it feels dry but it's still a little bit damp and you stain it then, a lot of times it will really suck in stain. So that's another way you can kind of trick wood into pulling in more stain. Then you want to use some sort of a finish for it. There's a lot of ways you can finish a gun to make it look old. One is you can take something like deer tallow, rendered deer tallow, and finish it with that. It's a very traditional finish, but it's something you're going to have to keep doing. If you want more of a glossy finish, uh, there's a product called True Oil Gun Finish, and it looks like it, just what it says. It's oil. It comes in a little jar. People get that, and they try to brush it on and, and all types of things. Let me tell you how you finish a stock with True Oil and get either a high gloss or a satin finish. You use your finger. Just take that piece of wood and just rub it on a full coating with your finger. Set it somewhere where it doesn't touch anything, so you need something to bring up like a wire or something to hang it on a part that's unfinished. Let it fully dry. And then use steel wool, fine-grained steel wool, really, really, this is if you want a mirror, like, shiny, like, Weatherby, you know, wood rifle finish. Really light steel wool. Second coat, you're probably good. Three if you really feel like it. But you would, you'll be amazed at how it will look. If you want a satin finish, rub it hard with the steel wool between coatings. Just rub it till it's buffed to a, a satin look, like a satin sheen. Do a second coat, do that again, and you get a satin finish. And you can do either one. A high-gloss finish on those old shotguns doesn't really look great, but that's a great protective element. You could also leave the stock unfinished and use something like linseed oil to do your finish, which would be more of a military-style uh, finish on, on a rifle. And you could do a linseed oil finish that gets very, very high gloss, so you can leave that wood open and don't over-finish it and, and just rub it into the stock with a cloth. Uh, and that'll get a look a lot like the old M1s that were in service, you know, at the beginning of, like, the Vietnam War era. Or the M1 Garands from World War II, uh, especially with a darker walnut stain. One more thing on the staining. If you really want a dark stain and you're using any kind of a rifle with like, again, these like maple stocks, birch stocks, things that are, you know, more modern, uh, with very fine grain, go one or two degrees darker than you think you want when you look at the little sample on a piece of pine board. Because it's going to be darker on pine than it's going to be on those stocks, even with everything I've told you. So one of the easiest money-saving things you can do if you want a nice single-shot or double-barrel double shotgun is find one of these old ones and just do a basic refinish on it. A little, little bit of oil, a little bit of steel wool, a little bit of sandpaper, a little bit of stain. Um, and it, it, it all of a sudden it takes like this old beat-up gun and it makes it something kind of special. And you can do anything you want with it for making it look 
better than they ever do when they come new. Kind of an upscale double barrel. All the way down to something that makes it look like that old, well-cared-for gun that would have been handed down from a grandfather or great-grandfather at this point. And anything in between. You can get creative. You can get kits and teach yourself checkering and put checkering into them. And there are good projects to even start learning engraving if you want to go that far. But I'm not going that far with you today. But there's great little kits out there that you can learn to do your own checkering. I say practice on just a piece of scrap wood first. And a softer wood's easier to work with. Learn, lay out your templates, and you can put checkering into these guns as well. Um, it really takes them up a notch when you do that. Uh, there's a lot to be done with just those cheap guns. And again, you're talking anything from 50 to 200 bucks. And I will tell you something else that looks really good redone that's often very inexpensive in the shotgun world, and that's the bolt-action shotguns. The old Mossbergs and Savages and stuff like that um, can be made to look really beautiful. And there's a lot of old ones of those around, folks, with beautiful black walnut stocks. They don't look beautiful, but if you can tell, that's black walnut under there. And one easy way is if you you know got somebody to let you, Pull the butt plate or, or recoil pad off the back, and usually the back of the stock that's covered up is unfinished. And if you look in there and it's a dark walnut color without finish on it, you know you're looking at a, a piece of good walnut. And uh, it might only be a bolt-action shotgun, but you just strip a piece of black walnut or even Carpathian walnut. Just strip it, sand it, and true oil finish it. And you'll be shocked at how gorgeous it is. So there you go on the shotguns. Okay, spent a lot of time on that first one because it requires some technical woodworking knowledge. But it's not hard to learn. And if you're working with a $50 gun and you, you don't get what you want, sand it off and do it again. Um, and if nothing else, even if you're not totally happy with it, you'll probably be able to sell it for 40 or 50 bucks and, and do something again. Many times you can finish up these old shotguns and people will pay you, you know, quite a bit more than you have into them. I don't know that you'll make a lot of money, but it's a way to kind of slowly step up into that gun you can't afford right now uh, while learning a new skill or just to make something cool. Those of you guys out there about to move those kids into those, the first you know stages of learning to shoot a shotgun, a double barrel or a single shot is going to make them focus a bit more than uh, you know shooting that pump gun or that semi-auto. It's lighter, easier to carry. Uh, it's got a lower length relative to its its barrel length. So a 28-inch barreled shotgun with a, a receiver on it, like a pump or a semi-auto, will be about three inches longer in overall length than a 28-inch single shot because the, the chamber locks straight up to the bolt face, if that makes sense. So it has a lot of advantages that way. And ha Now, that kid having a gun you did that to or maybe did that project together They're probably never going to sell that one. That'll probably be with them for the rest of their lives and maybe handed down to your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, which is, I think, what all gun owners hope happens to most of their guns that they stay in the family. That's a great way to start a new thing. Okay, next one, though. Since we're talking about bolt uh, brake actions, I want to talk a little bit about NEFs and a couple things you can do with the NEF, H&R, uh, handy rifles, single-shot rifles. First of all, those rifles shoot very well, but they do have some issues with the forearm because, you know, the shotgun, it doesn't matter. But with a rifle... Forearm pressure on the barrel has an issue with something called oscillation and harmonics. I'm not going to go deeply into that today. I have a great video on that. I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can learn all about oscillation and harmonics and why people do what's called free-floating a barrel if you want to know more about that. But just know that in many instances you'd like to make the barrel not touch the forearm. So when you fire the weapon and the barrel actually rotates, it oscillates, it comes into contact with nothing, 
And that means it will always be the same, where if there's pressure against the forearm, it may be different from one shot to the next. As the barrel expands from heat or humidity expands the stock or, or many different ways that that can happen. Okay? There's two schools of thought. One, you eliminate contact with the barrel, and the other is you make it consistent. So some rifles are actually built to always have contact and always have it the same way. It's, it's an either here or there issue, but all of the guys that are like setting world records for groups at a thousand yards are shooting free floated barrels. I'll, I'll leave it at that as to which one actually works better. Um, but with a, 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 if you think of a break action rifle, that forearm actually locks on to the barrel, so you can't fully free float it. What you can do though is there's a screw that holds that forearm on, and it's known as the rubber washer trick. And you take a rubber washer, you trim it up a little bit, and you fit it in there, and you float the barrel from the, from the screw forward. So there's no contact forward. And that greatly improves the action or the shooting, the consistent shooting of the NEF H&R weapons. There's, there's plenty of info on that. I'll put some links in today's show notes for you. But the rubber washer trick, it's, it's cheap as a 50 cent washer from Home Depot and a little bit of sandpaper and done. Before I leave the uh, NEF H&R rifles, I want to talk about another uh, modification that's pretty easy to do with them, and that's changing the chambers, rechambering them. There's a lot of stuff that's complicated that's done with them. There's people that have made wildcat calibers and things like that out of them, and and that's going to probably require you're either a gunsmith or you're going to use a gunsmith for them. I even see people redo the bores. I've seen people take uh, something like a .30-06, NEF H&R and have a, a custom smith rebore it to 30.338 bore, redo the chamber, and change it into a 338.06. So there's a lot of things that can be done with them. But there's a couple really easy ones that have great practical applications. The first one is creating what's called the 22K Hornet. And you can buy reamers. You can even do this by hand. Uh, that will ream the chamber. And these two rounds I'm going to give you, they are a rimmed cartridge that headspace is on the rim. And that might be a little bit complicated for some, but it just means that it's easy to do a rechamber in a single shot. There's a lot of issues with headspacing that aren't a problem at that point. A 22K Hornet takes a 22 Hornet round, which is like right between a 22 Magnum and like a 223. It's an amazing little round. It reaches out to 200 yards and knocks the, the snot out of varmints in small game, up to even mid-sized game. It's quiet, really quiet. It doesn't have the long-range potential that the 223 does, either for hunting or for, let's say, problems. You know, like it's the perfect kind of that rural burbs area hunting where you're hunting out in the farms, but yet there's still places around you want to keep the noise down, you want to keep the safety issue a little higher. Awesome round. The K-Hornet will up the velocity potential of the 22 Hornet by about 100 feet per second. It's not that big a deal, but in the range you're talking, it's it's significant. But the bigger reason is the 22 Hornet brass has a tendency to wear out pretty quick. And if you reload, and you should probably learn to reload if you're a gun person, just for the money saving and the knowledge it gains you as well, and we'll talk about that more in a bit, uh, but if you are a reloader, you want your brass to last as long as possible. The brass is the most expensive thing in a cartridge. You have a primer, you have a cartridge, okay? you have powder, and you have a bullet. And those are your components. And of those components, the brass, which is the reusable one, is the most expensive. When you go- take and change the shoulder angle from the regular Hornet to the K-Hornet, 
the brass lasts longer. It's a, it's, you're, you're loading that little thing pretty hot and it starts to wear out the case quick. Um, but you will extend the case life to double with this one simple mod and get more performance, not less. And most people have noticed slight accuracy improvements out of the K Hornet as well. You can buy a K Hornet Reamer and you can do this one yourself. The other one that has great practical applications is taking a NEF H&R handy rifle that's a .357 Magnum barrel and converting it into a .357 Maximum. This is a round that very few people seem to have heard of because it went off with a tremendous flop. In the early 80s, Dan Weston came out with a revolver with the .357 Maximum. At the time, it was the new most powerful handgun in the world. Dirty Harry, move over. Yes, more powerful than the 44 Magnum. It is simply a 357 Magnum with a longer case, and you can still get brass for it, and it uses everything else is the same as a 357 Magnum. There's reloading data from Hornady, from Lee, from Spear, from Sierra. Everybody has reloading data for this round. It's still used a lot by long-range single-shot pistol competitors, people that use like Thompson Center single-shot pistols to shoot long-range silhouette. It performs extremely well in those conditions. The reason it flopped in a revolver is one, the revolver was huge. And it didn't really do anything the 44 wouldn't do, even though it was technically more powerful as far as foot-pounds of energy. That's what they meant by more powerful. There's something called the Taylor Knockout Formula, or Taylor Knockdown Formula, that the 44 Magnum still performed better with. So it was all on which, you know, what do you look at as to power? But it was a very effective round. Issues were twofold. One, if, if somebody put, you know, hollow points in it, the added velocity and these rounds were, you know, the bullet was designed for the lower velocity of 357 Magnum. Sometimes they had fragmentation. It didn't get deep enough penetration. Using flat points, Totally takes care of that. Or upping it to 180 grain bullet in the uh, 357 caliber, uh, especially a flat point, takes care of that. Really takes care of that. But in a revolver, this extra powder and this flash burned out the throats of the revolvers and relatively quickly. So it was a gun that destroyed itself over time. Um, and it just wasn't worth it when you could get a damn good 44 mag for the same price with more manufacturers and not worry about it. So it flopped. But something magical happens when we take the 357 Magnum or Maximum, or 38 Special for that matter, and take it and put it into something like a handy rifle uh, with a 22-inch barrel. The velocity goes way, way, way up. A 357 Magnum, just a standard 357 Magnum load in the NEH, uh, NEF handy rifle, 22-inch barrel, locked breech, no loss of pressure, has velocities that go into the 357 Magnum or maximum, the, the modified round uh, level, uh, even comparative to like a 10-inch barreled breech-faced uh, handgun. So better than even the revolver had. With this. So the Magnum becomes a maximum. Now, you buy this reamer, and you ream the chamber to 357 maximum length. And then the 357 max goes into 22-inch barrels. It gets within a couple hundred feet of 180-ground round out of the 35 Remington. This is now a true deer-sized game-in-up hunting rifle. But 
Now you know what I'm going to say. You know what it'll do. The 357 Maximum is the exact same outside diameter and head size as the 357 Magnum and the 38 Special. Now you have one rifle that will shoot 38 Specials, 38 Special plus P, which is a high-pressure 38 Special, okay? the 357 Magnum and the 357 Maximum. And with light 38 Special loads, it'll do something else. I'll tell you about in a bit when I get to another thing. But those two are super easy. The reamers are inexpensive. And in the NEF H&R list on Yahoo, it's even possible you can find someone that's already got a reamer that would send it to you for a few bucks if you agree to send it back to them. A lot of people on that list, it's a great list. I'll put a link to it today in the show notes. On that, that This is an incredible list of people, great guys. I've been on that list since like 2000. Right back when I had an AOL email account, that's how long I've been on that list. Um, and they're just great guys, and a lot of guys have done things like projects on there where there's like a tool that you need, and like they all go, like this expensive tool, they all go in together, and like it gets shipped to the first guy's house, he uses it, ships it to the second guy, and so on and so forth. So it's a great list if you want to know more about these guns. And I'll only warn you one thing about NEFs: you get into them, it's an addiction. And uh, I haven't played with mine for a while because they they end up. I want this barrel, and I want that barrel, and I want this barrel, and I want to do this project. And I, you see what I'm saying? It's like getting into ham radio. It consumes you, so I'll, I'll warn you about that. Um, and uh, it, it, that's where I should tell you like the coolest thing about NEFs. They have a program where you send them your receiver, and they fit new barrels to it. Shotgun, rifles, all different kinds of calibers. I'll put a link where you can learn more about that today as well. Next, I want to talk real quick just about getting started reloading. And I just have a, a little product for you to check out. If you want to teach yourself reloading, you will not be able to do everything with this, but you'll be able to reload a cartridge. You'll be able to get started for about 30 to 35 bucks, depending on where you buy it. I'm going to put links today uh, for the pistol kits and the rifle kits on the Lee Precision website. This is the manufacturer's website. I will tell you, do not... One more time, do not order products from LeePrecision.com. They will charge you full retail and probably a little bit more. They do this because they are a great company that believes in preserving its relationships with its distributors and resellers. So you can buy Lee equipment for less from Midway USA or Cabela's generally or anybody else, Mid-South mid Shooting Supply, whatever, then you can buy it from Lee, okay? Because they do that on purpose to protect their partners. They'll sell it to you, but they'll sell it to you at a, or above full retail. Got it? The reason I'm linking to Lee's site is you might go to Cabela's, look for something like a 270 Winchester Lee loader, Not think, not see it, and not think they make it. Once you go to the lease site, you can verify everything they make, and then you can go find it at your supplier of choice and pay less money for it. All right, so I'm empowering you with knowledge today beyond just what you can do. But I am linking to the lease site for these two, the, the rifle and pistol versions. What the Lee loader is, is a little metal tool and a powder measure and a few other things, and all you need is a piece of wood or a hammer, And, you know, powder, primers, and bullets for your caliber of choice, and you can reload ammunition. It's so small you could put it, if you were wearing like a typical dress shirt with a little front pocket, it could fit in there. 
if you want to get more flexibility out of it, you need to learn about powder measurements using Lee's powder dippers, and you need to get a powder dipper kit. All right, You need to know what you're doing. You need a copy of the Lee manual with the volume conversions for all the powder types. And if you do that, you know you can have a couple dippers that go with the one dipper they send you, and you can get very flexible with this little tool. It's faster than you would think. It is you know, kind of a one-at-a-time thing. But I've seen people sitting with one of these, trying out various loads, sitting on the rifle bench, and re, you know, shooting three or four rounds and reloading a new load and shooting again. It would fit in a bug-out bag. And yes, friends, it is made in 223 Remington. Okay, It's also made in that 22 Hornet. This is the easiest, least expensive way I know to get started reloading. And it's very cool in how portable and flexible it is. And then you can step up. If you would like to start doing shotgun reloading, um, I'm also going to put a link for uh, the Lee, uh, Lee loading uh, press for shotgun shells. It's available in 12-gauge, 16-gauge, and 20-gauge. It's unfortunate that it don't make a 410 model. It is so affordable. This is a shotgun reloading system with all the bushings for shot and powder you need. Uh, bushings generally cost quite a bit of money in of themselves, and it sells for full retail price about $72. It's the best cheap shot shell reloader on the market. It works very, very well. And if you want to shoot more shotgun sh- uh, and, and more flexibility in your shotgun shooting, there's no cheaper way to do it affordably and effectively and with good quality. There are many loaders, many shot shell reloaders like uh, RCBS and MEC and et cetera that are better and faster and cooler, but they're a lot more expensive. I'll also say if you want to start reloading, Lee is the least expensive way to get incredibly high-quality reloading equipment. The presses, the dies, everything. It's just the best for the money on the market, with one exception. I do not like their powder measures. If you want to do the little dipper powder measures, those are fine. If you want to do one of their um, their progressive kits, so you're you're talking about a kit that's like pull, pull, and every time, and they do their own powder measure, and they've got these little, those are fine. Those are fine. If you're doing precision reloading, their little powder measure, they call it the perfect powder measure, I don't like it. I've had problems with three different ones. Um, powder leaking out of the sides. Uh, they say it's very consistent in charges. It'll be consistent. It'll be consistent. It won't be. Uh, if you want to get very consistent with your powder charges, get something like the Lyman or RCBS powder charging uh, system where you got a scale and a powder measure, and they're wirelessly connected to each other, and it, it throws the powder, and it, it throws an exact charge every time, and the scale tells the powder measure when to stop. That's probably the most accurate way. Those are expensive. And there's nothing wrong with the perfect powder measure, except it'll piss you off because you'll check it on the scale and it won't be exact. The scale they sell is very good, by the way. The Lee uh, powder scale is very good. I like everything except their powder measure when it comes to precision reloading. But the uh, the Lee loader, just awesome. And the shot shell reloading presses, the Lee load all, um, the value is extreme. 
The fact that it comes with bushings for powder and shot. If you don't know what that is, you're going to be on today's show. But if you start adding up, like when you want, you know, to be able to reload this, that, and the other thing and getting all these bushings, a lot of these other companies sell the bushings individually. Some of the bushing sets cost more than the entire system from Lee. So, uh, I can't tell you how much I recommend Lee. And if, if you want to learn reloading, um, With, again, the caveat that I'm not a fan of that perfect powder measure, which Richard Lee's very proud of what he's done with that tool, and I just, I'm not. Um, everything else in his book is, is like from the Bible of reloading. Modern Reloading by Richard Lee is the go-to resource for the new reloader to become very savvy about reloading and learn a lot of cool tips and tricks as well, including things on squib loads and, and casting bullets and all types of other great stuff. Next thing I want to talk about is improving the 22 long rifle, the actual cartridge, without reloading because they're not reloadable, uh, in a way that will make them dynamite on small game and allow you to be consistent with the accuracy of your shooting. So here's the issue with 22 long rifles on small game like squirrels and rabbits many times. If you shoot them in the head, all is well. Okay, You can't always get the head shot. And I've seen... Squirrels shot right through the chest with a 22 long rifle, a standard 22 round nose long rifle, like, you know, Remington uh, Thunderbolt or something like that. Uh, get away. And you know they died. But it just goes through and it, it doesn't, pencil through is a bad term. Um, an animal shot through and through with a round is, you know, in a vital area is going to die. But they always don't, they don't always get the shock value to knock down. The animal's in many instances, dead, but the body's running on adrenaline, the brain's still functioning, and the squirrel goes in a hole in the tree, okay? Or the rabbit goes into the brush pile and you can't find it. Deer and, and other game, when that happens, it's less of an issue because you've got this great big blood trail and a very large animal to find. So a lot of times, small game, unless you can get that headshot or really lock in on that, on that vital area, um, You lose game with a 22 long rifle with a round nose. So everybody goes, I know, I'll go to the hollow point. And then you shoot the squirrel and the ribs blow out the other side and you lose a lot of meat on an animal that's already small. Not as big of an issue with a rabbit, but a significant issue. What would be great is if somebody had the brains, and right now just getting 22 long rifle is difficult uh, because it's still it's the last fatality of the ammo shortage, right? But if somebody would make a 22 long rifle cartridge of about 37 instead of 40 grains, or it could even be 40 grains, with a flat, blunt tip. So now instead of a nice little round tip that goes through, you've got a flat tip. So think of the difference in like poking yourself in the hand with just the tip of your finger and then maybe taking three fingertips and smacking it. And if that was going through your hand, how it would create a little bit larger of a wound channel and deliver more energy without expanding and blowing the shit out of the little squirrel that you wanted to put on your campfire. So how do we do this? Well, what you can do is take a file and file the tip of that bullet flat. You just file a little bit off and make it flat problem is you'll have like this little mushroom over the side of it and then you'll have to clean that up that's not that big a deal but if you want it to be consistently accurate you want everyone you do to be exactly the same hmm how do we do this how do we do this 
We could sit there and measure everyone with a micrometer, and when we screw one up, throw it away, or use it as a practice round. That would be a tedious pain in the ass. Or we could make a jig. A jig that would allow us to put, like, six of them in it at one time, have the ends just stick out enough, and run a file across them, and maybe clean them up a little bit. And by that, with doing it that precise, you can just take your fingers and, and, and take off any filings along the side, and then we'd have these blunt tip... 22 long rifles that would knock the snot out of a squirrel without blowing it in half. Where would we get something like that? Well, we might go down to the local gun show and find ourselves a beat-up little 22 revolver. These things often sell for 30 or 40 bucks. I've seen them. It doesn't matter how beat-up or rusted it is as long as the cylinder is intact. We'll then take it apart, effectively destroying this little gun, and we now have a tool. We have a tool that doesn't quite work. You put the rounds in it, and of course the ends don't stick out. So you go down to a local machine shop, and you have them remove enough of a cylinder for you on a machine so that the rounds will stick out as far as you want them to. You now take that, put your six rounds in it, lay it on a table, and take a, a file and go across. And you can make six at a time, and it takes about 15 seconds per set to make those rounds. You now have a highly effective 22 long rifle round you cannot buy for the price of a beat-up, piece-of-crap, .22 revolver that was probably not worth saving anyway. You could have a jig made. You could go down to a local machine shop and have them cut it out of a piece of aluminum or stock steel and bore it out for you. It'll probably cost you more, though. But for those of you with machine shops, with proper marketing, if somebody were to make one of these designed to do just that, it might be quite marketable. I'm just saying. In fact, I could see it being done in a way with like a swing arm, almost like a spruce plate when you cast bullets, that would just kind of slice them off, and then you clean them up. And it could do maybe 20 at a time. I don't know. I don't know where you're pushing your limits with that. All I know is I've seen it done, and I've played around with it using a modified old cylinder, 22 long rifle cylinder, and it works really good and really simple. And again, it's something that would easily fit into a bug out bag. Just saying. Well, it's probably not a good idea. That cylinder most likely, if it was done the right way, could be used with 22 longs or shorts. Uh, I, I wouldn't advise doing that, though. I mean, you would just say that's another one. Uh, another thing that's really fun to do is restoration of military surplus firearms without ruining them. them. Ruining them. A uh, couple tips for doing that. One, go to surplusrifle.com, and you'll learn everything you need to know, and you don't need to listen to me. But here's a couple things that I'll throw in, and most of which I've learned from surplusrifle.com. Number one, they get Cosmoline out of the stocks. A lot of these old military rifles, when they're taken out of service and put in the storage, were just literally bathed in Cosmoline and then like wrapped in brown paper. So when it comes to you, like the old SK, like SKS is out of Yugoslavia, perfect example. You take it out, you shoot it, you shoot a lot, you heat the barrel up, and it starts to literally weep Cosmoline out of the this gross, disgusting, oily Cosmoline out of it. Uh, so heat makes it come out. So go with that. What you do is on a good sunny day, make yourself like a tent, black plastic garbage bags, and put your stock or even the whole weapon inside of there, unloaded of course, and uh, allow it to bake and put it in a way that like it'll bake and like, like propped up so the cosmoline drips out of it. And you know, every once in a while, take it out, wipe it off, put it back in. It will weep a ton of the cosmoline out of the stock. 
Then you've got this stock that maybe is beaten and, and, and battered and you'd like to refinish it. Not strip it down to bare wood and, and totally restore it in a way that's not really restoration, but simply get all of the gunk and nastiness and some of it and give it a little bit of stain, a little bit of a true, like an oil finish or something like that to make it the way that it was when it was issued without altering it. Again, back to easy off oven cleaner. It will strip that thing beautifully for you. Um, and then if you hose it down and soak it and get all the oven cleaner off it after you've done that, the wood will then, like I said before, expand and it little pieces of the wood will kind of come up and hitting that with some sandpaper after it's like halfway dry will take a lot of the dings and dents and scratches and things out of it without taking them all out, leaving the cool factor. And then you can add your stain and your your oil finish and 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 make it look like it used to. Um, you know, most of them are parkerized, not blued. So if you want to do anything with that, a lot of times you need to have some help with that. But many times, all they really need is a good cleaning, a little bit of steel wool and some uh, and birchwood, uh, you know, um, WD-40 oil. And with that little project, you can often take a pretty beaten old. Uh, military surplus gun, like the old Turkish Mausers, and you can refinish them and make them look the way they did when they were first created without bubbaizing them or sporterizing them. Even though we're going to talk about doing that in just a second, and some people think that's a horrible thing to do, I think it all depends on what you're doing it to. So, uh, but that's just the basics of refinishing, restoring without damaging military surplus arms. Again, surplusrifle.com is a great place to learn more about that. Now, one that I don't mind kind of cutting up a little bit, maybe even get some gunsmithing help on the project with, is the Mazenagant. Um, it is available in such quantities at such a low price. If you really want to preserve the Mosin for what it is, buy two or three of them and put a couple away. And then buy one to Bubba Eyes, right? I think they make an excellent scout rifle. A scout rifle is a rifle with a low-powered scope forward on the receiver, about where the rear sight would be. Generally speaking, you also have a rear aperture and front uh, set of metallic sights, so the scope if has, is damaged or has to be removed, the rifle's still in function. They're a short-length, carbine-length rifle in a caliber capable of taking at least deer size game. So they're a, a mountain hunter's rifle. Um, and I guess they would serve pretty well in a shit at the fan as kind of a counter sniper rifle as well, because they have a lot of good attributes for that. Um, I can't think of a rifle with more potential to do that with and keep the cost down than the Mosin. You can buy these guns for easily less than a hundred bucks still. Uh, the M44 carbine variant is perfect for this. There are all kinds of aftermarket products, including scope mounts. You simply remove the rear sight and it mounts to the, the, the ears of the rear sight. There's aperture sights available. There's bolt kits available um, where you could actually do this to a Mosin and pretty much not actually hurt it if you go with the M44 and don't remove the front sight and make, if you do a rear aperture sight, make it work with the, the front sight you have where, yeah, it's a scout rifle, but you save all the other parts. You get a new bolt for it. It's already turned down. And if somebody said, well, you know, one day, I don't know, Mosin-Nagans dry up and blow away, and the collector's value of an unaltered one is really high. You could take all that stuff off and put it right back to the way it was. So it's a way to kind of do a sporterization of a Mosin without actually altering it. Or go ahead and alter it. I mean, if you want to cut the barrel, recrown it, get a, some gunsmith to help you with that, that's actually 
you end up with a better end product. I saw I saw one barrel was brought back a little bit. It was recrowned. That's where when you cut a barrel, a gunsmith goes in and they they put that little rounding. If you look at the end of a barrel, unloaded of course. There's a little. It's not just like flat and blunt. It's either rounded or it's got a bevel to it. That makes the the gases from the bullet when it's you know it's coming out of the end of the barrel uniform, so that there's not one side venting a little more and it doesn't throw off the bullet's accuracy. That's why they do that. So recrowned and then um, ported. Ported is where they cut little holes in the barrel, right up like a muzzle brake, and that actually reduces recoil. And if you if you put it So the, the, the holes are pointing up. Not only does it reduce recoil, but it also reduces muzzle jump because when it vents out some of the, the pressure, it vents it to the top and pushes the barrel down a little bit. So I've seen some done that way that are very, very nice. There's a lot of stocks available uh, for them that are pretty much a drop-in operation. So, again, you can take it to the level of recutting the barrel, removing the front sight, and doing all that. You're going to probably have as much money into it at that point as you would buying an off-the-shelf rifle that's designed to be a scout rifle. But it's cool. And the surplus ammo for that weapon is still hugely, hugely available cheap. And big metal cans completely sealed up that you could put away for for a hundred years and they would still work. Just saying. Okay? Or you could do it low cost with some aftermarket accessories and leave it in a way that it could be returned to its original form if you so choose to. Surplusrifle.com, great place to learn more about that. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, creating in-stock survival kits. A lot of your wooden stocked rifles have plenty of wood on them, and it's really easy to go in, and you want to be careful with this and not drill sideways and make sure you're drilling at a straight angle, and don't try to put too big of a hole in it, but putting a couple holes in a stock, so you remove the butt plate or the recoil pad, put a couple holes in the stock, and you can put stuff in there. I'm not going to go into what you can put in there, but you can put stuff in there. You could put one extra round in there, and there would always be a round. That would be one thing you could do. The NEF, H&R Handy Rifles and Shotguns we talked about, when you pull their uh, butt, uh, recoil pad off, they have a pretty big hole that you use to access the bolt that separates the stock from the gun, and that'll hold a lot. And if you were trying to shoot really accurate off a bench and reduce recoil, maybe for a younger shooter to get used to it, One thing you can put in that hole, other than kit stuff, is shot. About one and a half pounds of nine shot fits in that hole in an NEF. That adds a one and a half pound weight to the rifle. It makes it more stable on the bench and takes up some of the recoil from a young shooter. That's a little bonus for you guys there. Uh, but creating in-stock survival kits uh, is a great idea. I've seen a lot of people, they drill a hole in their rifle, they put a ferrocium rod in that hole, and they say, I can always start a fire. That's great. I see nothing wrong with it. But did you know your rifle can be used to start fires? And I, I know what most people say when I tell them this if they don't know exactly how to do it. Well, yeah, you could get it open and get the powder out. And the powder is then an ignition tool. And you could take that and throw a spark on it or whatever, and it'll light. And, and that is part of it. Um, so before you rely on this that I'm about to give you, I, I want you to learn how to start a fire with a match in the woods when you don't have everything available to you at home. And I know people take that for granted that it's easy to do. It's not always as easy as you think. So I'm talking about learning to make a good tinder bundle and getting everything ready to go and all your wood together so that once you get that flame going, you can keep it going and you can get a good 
fire started that in many cases might save your life or at least keep you in a position to be more comfortable until you are extracted if you're lost in the woods, so to speak. What I'm about to tell you is a skill that every hunter should have. If you ever go hunting with a rifle or a shotgun and you're ever away from home when you're doing that and there's ever any potential whatsoever to be stranded and need fire, you should know how to do this. And sadly, we don't teach this in most of the hunter safety education courses uh, that most hunters, you know, anybody born after, I think, 72 in most states is required to have completed one of these to get your license. Or if they don't check, like your game, the game warden, when they check your, your, your hunting license, will sometimes ask for proof of a hunter's education course. Uh, most of the time they don't do that, but they can, and it's, it's required that you have it. So most hunters have had a hunter's ed course, and this is taught very seldom, but I was lucky as a kid, and in Pennsylvania, uh, in rural PA, this was something that was taught in most of them from the people I've talked to, at least from my generation. What you do is you take a, and, and think about this, there's been people out stranded with rifles and ammunition that have damn near froze to death, or froze to death, they couldn't get a fire started, and they had the tools, the knowledge is what was lacking. So, Making sure the weapon is unloaded. I know I said only do the disclaimer once, but the safety police are active, so you know, making sure the weapon is unloaded. And you have to be careful doing this. There is a potential to cause yourself injury if you don't do it right. The first thing we gotta do is we gotta get the bullet out of the cartridge. Now, if we have a pair of pliers, it's probably safer to use them, but many times we won't. Or sometimes we can't get enough leverage with a centerfire around. Some centerfire cartridges literally today don't just have the, the bullet crimped in, but almost glued in. So it's a little bit hard. So with a 22, you might want to take the, the powder out of three or four of them. But uh, with the most centerfire, the powder that comes out of one's enough. The way to get that bullet out, if you don't have a tool to do it with, is you take the bullet and you stick it into the end of your rifle. You don't jam it in there. You put it in just enough to get leverage, and you start to wiggle the case back and forth, up and down, back and forth, up and down. You do not want to do this to the point where you jam the, the, the bullet into the end of the barrel. You might want to use the gun, okay? But if you had a cleaning rod, you could probably still knock it out. But you can do it without causing this to happen. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Real gentle. Don't try to do it fast, Right? Get it until the round will come out. Don't spill it. Have a place set up already to dump your powder. Dump your powder into that little area. If it's windy, rainy, etc., make sure it's going to stay safe. This is going to start your fire, no doubt. Take the cartridge now that you have the bullet out of. Take a small pinch, just a tiny, tiny pinch of powder. Put it back inside the cartridge. Take a piece of cloth, like cut a piece of cloth off a shirt or something, not nylon, something that will catch spark and burn. Cotton is great for this. A cleaning patch or two is good for this. Put it in the cartridge and push it in there a little bit with like a stick. Don't, don't pack it all the way down. Just get it inside past the neck. Load it into your round, your, into your rifle, point it at a hard surface like a rock and shoot it. It will go pap like that. It's just a primer and a tiny bit of, of, of powder. It will, it will sound like a, 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 a low power blank, like a, a 22 CB cap. And it will shoot that piece of cloth onto that rock. Pick it up and blow gently on it. And generally you'll get an ember, a little red. Blow and take it down to your powder, which should now be sitting underneath your tinder bundle, right? Ready to go. 
and touch it to the powder. It'll set the powder off. The powder will set off the tinder. The tinder sets off your kindling. Your kindling now it can be used to build a fire. This is one of the most valuable survival skills for hunters, and I do not know why it's not talked about or taught more. It's simple, it's dead easy, and it's something that you should, yes, practice. Practice it. If you don't want to mar up the muzzle of your, your, your gun, get a pipe of similar inside diameter and learn to do it with that. Okay. If you are a child, do not do this without supervision. If you are an adult, use your damn common sense when you do this. But I have no problem with people practicing this. If you're a reloader and you don't want to go pulling, load up a cartridge with just a primer and try it without having to go through that. You, you, you probably are always going to be able to get that bullet out. You may muck up a little bit the, the bore of a, a rifle. So this is to be used not every time you start a fire, right? But in a survival situation, it's good to know that it can be done. It's actually awesome. Uh, the next one I want to talk about. Um, this could be used for illegal purposes. I'm not suggesting that, but it might also save your ass someday to know you can do it. So let's say I'm out small game hunting with a shotgun. It's rabbit and grouse and squirrel season in rural northeastern United States like I grew up in where I used to hunt in Pennsylvania. And I'm out there hunting. Now, it would be a great idea, knowing that I could be lost and know that I might need to feed myself if I were to get lost or injured or I might need to defend myself to have slugs with me. That way, if I got lost and I couldn't get home and I couldn't find any grouse or squirrels and there was a deer, I could shoot the deer and I could eat the deer and I could worry about the damn fine after I was saved and not starving to death in the woods. Or if I ended up in some kind of, like, I'm out hunting and the shit literally hits the fan while I'm doing that and I need to defend myself to get home or whatever it is, slugs would be a good thing to have. But if I'm walking around minding my own business, shooting my grouse and squirrels, and I have slugs in my possession and it's not deer season, and I have my shotgun and my license, and I'm doing everything the way I'm supposed to, and the friendly guy we call the game warden, or down here in Texas we call him the rabbit sheriff, comes to me and says, I'd like to check your license, please. And I say, well, yes, sir, here it is. And he goes, what ammunition do you have on you? And he can ask me to disclose what I have. And I'm caught with slugs. It's actually an infraction. It's a crime. Basically saying you have the intent to take game that's not legal right now because you don't, it's not legal to shoot squirrels with slugs. They, to, to totally cover their ass, Pennsylvania, for instance, made the use of slugs on small game illegal so there'd be no purpose to have it while hunting other than for the purpose of shooting deer or bear, which are not in season, therefore I've caught you in the act of attempted poaching even though you didn't actually see a deer or shoot at one. So how might I be able to have the capabilities of a slug with a shotgun, and not be sighted by the rabbit sheriff. Well, I would carry, and if I was going to make sure that I had some, like, even if I was out shooting squirrels and grouse or dove, and I'm normally carrying like seven and a half or six shot or nine shot or whatever, I'd carry a few rounds of like, you know, number fours. Six will work, number number four, number two is better for this. Besides, you never know when you might get an opportunity at something like, if it's legal during that time of year, turkey or or ducks, or geese, where that larger shot size might be good to have on you. And I would just carry those. And I would carry a good quality pocket knife, which should be on your person at all times anyway. And what you're going to do is make a cut shell. You need to know a little bit about the anatomy of a shotgun shell to do this, and you need to know that if you're doing it like a pump or a semi-auto, it's a, you're turning your gun into a single shot when you do this. This is ideal for things like single shots and double barrels. What you do, and this is kind of an old trick from back in the Depression era, 
for killing deer when they needed them for food, when they kind of ignored the law. There is, in a shot shell, there's powder, then a wadding, which today is generally made of plastic, and then the shot. And you need to know about where the wadding is. And about dead center of the wadding is where you want to do this. You take your knife and you cut into the plastic shell. Not all the way through it, just all the way through the plastic. So you're getting to where if you went harder, you'd start cutting into the wadding. You cut a circle around the shell, but a little bit offset. So that where you start and where you end pass each other, but the shell stays together. I'll put a link to a video on doing this on, on the show notes today so you can see it. You load that round, and some people say, you can't do it in a semi-auto, or you can't do it in a pump. You can. Again, you just, you're going to load one shot to do this. When you shoot that round, what happens is that last little bit of plastic you've left on the shell breaks. And instead of having the, sh the shot go out in a pattern and disperse, it's shot out in a cup, a cup you've made. Instead of the end of the shell breaking, The back of the shell gives, and the whole thing goes out in a big, giant lump. And it effectively is a now a frangible slug, and it does massive damage. And it ranges out to like 25, 30 yards. If you can hit the, the target, it will put a deer plumb down on its ass. And it, if it needed to be used for defensive purposes, it would be very, very effective as a defensive round. Uh, once this came out on YouTube, some old man showed somebody how to do it. I think that's a video I'm going to try to find for you guys today. But a lot of people have shot a lot of things with them just to see what happens. It's pretty impressive. Again, I would carry some higher shot, you know, heavier shot, like like twos or fours as a reserve for this. If I was going to be out doing some long-term hunting, I might need them. Uh, but they would it would work with nine shot. It would most certainly work with nine shot. Uh, it just might be better if it was a little bit heavier uh, shot size. Again, this is a situation where people might be in a situation to need a slug or a slug-like projectile, have everything they need to create one, but not have the knowledge to actually use the tool. So that's another little trick for you today. It's not really a project, just something good to know. Um, a next thing I want to talk about is converting a 1022 to an M1 carbine clone. This is one of the easiest little, you know, kind of gun build projects you can do. They make stocks for the 1022 that are the same, that look just like an M1 carbine. An M1 carbine or 30 carbine is a great little rifle. The originals are expensive. The remakes are expensive, but they have a lot going for them. They have a rear aperture sight, a really great front sight. They handle well. People call them underpowered. But, folks, the 30 carbine has more energy at 100 yards than a 357 Magnum out of a 4-inch revolver has at the muzzle. It's rated as underpowered because it's a 110-grain, you know, 30-caliber round. Um, and it's not really great for deer or deer-sized game. But it's it's got the potential when used right. But this isn't about a 30 carbine. It's just, I want to tell you, it's a great little gun. But they're expensive. The big thing, though, is they're a great gun to shoot because they train you to be a good rifleman. They have the iron sights are the way we should all be trained to shoot, not scopes. But iron sights on most sporting weapons where you have like a buckhorn or a rear leaf and the front sight and you line them up, you know, like your two fingers and your thumb, like on a pistol. Um, and that rear sight is well forward of the chamber are not optimum iron sights to shoot with. You look at all military weapons, they have a rear peep sight and a front aperture sight. And that rear peep sight is way back close to your right eye. The M1 carbine was made that way. The M1 Garand is made that way. If you want to shoot at an apple seed, for instance, you want to shoot iron sights, you want to keep your cost down, shoot a 22, 
uh, but you want a better sight system, doing an M1 clone would be a great thing to do. So they make sights, and they make, there's a lot of sights available, and most of them, the problem is they're exact replicas of sort of of what goes on the M1, but they're not adjustable for windage and elevation. The sights you want to get are from a company called TechSight, and they make the rear one. It screws right into the holes on a 1022 that are designed to hold a scope mount, so no gunsmithing. The front one basically goes right over and attaches to the factory front sight. This means you have to do no drilling, no tapping, no gunsmithing. You change your sights to a much better sight, and if you ever want to put it back to a stock 1022, take them off. That's all you have to do. And take the, the M1 stock off. So I'll put links to the stock and the tech sites that you can use for this conversion. I also have a link to a forum thread where you can take old M1 style magazines, 30 cal magazines. And these again, they're not like a 3006 or a 308. They're a short round. You can look up 30 carbine if you want to know what the round looks like. Um, but it's like a box magazine. It extends from the bottom of the 1022. So you do this 1022 conversion to an M1, and it looks, they look awesome. They look just like an old M1 carbine. Uh, but it's a 22 long rifle. You can practice with it, shoot with it. If you own a 30 carbine, it's, it's gonna train well one to the other. But it just, you know, it doesn't have this box magazine coming down. So there's a thread I found where a guy took a 30 carbine magazine, took the spring out of it, cut it, and then just epoxied a 10.22 mag to it. So when you put it into the weapon, it looks like it's extending down. Cool, but by the time you buy some cheap stuff, do the cutting, do the epoxy, buy the 22, 10.22 magazine, they actually make these things, and you can just buy them. So I'll put a link to where you can buy the magazines or the link where you can learn how to make your own. Why would you do this other than to complete the illusion of the 30 carbine, to make it look true to type? Well, that magazine that drops down there when you're doing mag changes is actually really easy to grab when you hit the mag release and change, and it's much easier to feed the new one in than it is to take that 1022 flush fit magazine and get it out of there. Um, if you wanted to do, you know, your 1022 25 round banana magazines, by modifying the mag, not the receiver or the stock, you could still use factory 1022 mags or aftermarket mags or drum magazines or anything you ever wanted to with it, but you'd have that kind of fit and finish for the conversion. It's a great project. And again, I'll put links to the tech sites, the stock that I would recommend, uh, and the thread on making your own magazines in today's show notes. Again, on that note, the links I'm putting in today's show notes are to show you the products. I, I'm not endorsing the, the, the provider. So once you know the product, if you can find somebody you prefer to do business with or has a better price or a better shipping policy or get it on Amazon with Prime if they sell it, you know, go nuts with that. There's no affiliate links or anything like that. I'm just with my links today showing you the product I'm actually talking about. So if I was showing you a Wilson basketball, for instance, it doesn't matter if you buy it from Walmart or Amazon or Joe Sporting Goods. It's still the same ball. Just just to be clear on that for everybody. But it's, it's something I think I'm going to do. It's going to be my next gun project is to go out and buy another 1022 because the one that I have, I have this beautiful custom walnut stock on it and this custom sling and this great uh, one and a half to seven power scope. And I don't really want to change that one. So probably my next purchase of a new gun, not a used gun, but a new gun is going to be another 1022 or find a used 1022 and uh, do this conversion because I think they're very, very cool. And I'd really like to have one. And it's a low cost way to have something that emulates something that's pretty expensive today. 
and it's all drop-in stock, take it apart, put it back together, drop on sites. Uh, kind of a cool thing. Very cool thing. We're going long, so something I'll throw in real quick. There's a lot, like Dixie Gunworks and, and Cabela's and Bass Pro, there's a lot of like flintlocks and cap and ball uh, rifles and shotguns that you can build from kits. Um, they're fun, and they're easy. There's a little bit of fit and finish to do to make sure all the parts fit the wood. And basically, you're doing a woodworking project, and you're doing an assembly, and you're, you know, you're, you're browning the, uh, the metal, and, and that's about it. Um, and they generally cost less than buying the finished gun. It's a great way to get into black powder. And, you know, you'll know everything about the gun uh, because you're the one that, that did all the, the fitting and finish and putting together. So I'll just throw that as an easy one to do. Um, you might want to consider building slings that have ways to carry things. Um, I didn't build it, but the 1022 I just mentioned, um, I have a sling, and that sling is, uh, I bought it from Ruger, it's made for the 1022, and it has a little snap pouch on it. And uh, it's also got a place for a thumb to go through when you're carrying it, the weapon slung over your shoulder, but that pouch holds a magazine for the 1022. Then they sell a little thing that holds two more magazines that's designed to be worn on your belt. But it also fits on the sling. So when I grab that 1022, I've got three magazines of ammunition with it at all times that it carries for itself. But I could put other pouches onto a sling or something like that to carry additional things I might need uh, for wilderness survival or just wilderness comfort when I'm on the trail. You might want to, you know, this is a great way to combine things. So if you want to learn leatherworking, learn leatherworking and build a purpose-built sling that does some things. Um, try, though, with your slings. Not the, the one thing I don't like about the sling for the 1022 is it's got that big, flat, nice piece on your shoulder, and it is comfortable, but it takes away from your ability to put your arm through it and do sling tension to improve your shooting. So you're giving up one thing for the other. If you're building your own slings, try to leave that thin sling profile, GI sling, you know, World War II, uh, Korean War era style sling, uh, because when you can get your arm wrapped in that and do sling supported firing, it brings a lot of stability to your shooting. I think that's another thing that's, that's out there as a market for the craftsman that wants a part time business. Custom slings and maybe doing them from paracord. Uh, that's really kind of a hot thing right now. Doing them a little different than everybody else does. And making them where they can carry and hold additional things and not give up the functionality and the comfort and not overweight them. So that would be another one. Um, I want to talk real quick about, back to reloading, a load you can do that's so quiet that basically you're walking around with a silenced gun that can take deer-sized game, be very effective for personal defense, and if somebody heard it from across the street, they might think somebody set off a cap gun at best. How can you do this without a firearm stamp? It's called a light load. This isn't even a squib load. A squib load is where we load down around to as low as we can safely take it. This is a published load. I actually just did a rerun of episode 75, and if you've listened to that rerun, then you know this load, but I'll repeat it here for those that may not have, because I want to talk a little bit about what makes it so cool and how you can extend this to other cartridges. Um, I would really suggest that you see the show notes, and uh, if you're going to use my load data, actually be sure you didn't write it down wrong, okay? Um, and I really suggest what you do is you get reloading manuals, and what you want to look for is the lightest load for the heaviest bullet of the cartridge in, K in, in, uh, in question. And what you're looking for generally are handgun rounds that are used in rifles, 
So what I have is a Marlin 1895 lever uh, action rifle. It's got a 20-inch 20, 20 barrel, I believe. It's either 18 or 20 inches. Nice little handy carbine, 44 Magnum, great deer gun in thick woods with standard you know, 44 Magnum rounds, flat points, not hollow points when you get that extra velocity. And I read Richard, Richard Lee's book, and he starts talking about reduced loads and you know, using lead and lead cast bullets with them and how quiet you can make them and still have them be accurate and still get a lot of penetration. And I also started at the same time I was learning about reloading, doing a lot of research into wildcatting and certain rounds that perform better than expected, like one is the 300 Whisper. Well, the 300 Whisper is a really heavy for caliber, 30 caliber bullet inside a 223 magazine necked up to take 30 caliber with a very light charge. It's quiet as hell. You shoot it out of an AR platform, and it has massive penetration because it's a heavy bullet Moving slow penetrates like no, no, nobody's business. So I started thinking, can I combine the two of these? So I took Richard Lee's re, uh, Modern Reloading, first edition. This is the old red one. If you want to find this book, um, the new book has more data, but the old book has some data that's not in the new book. And you might be able to find it on eBay or, or something like that or at a half-price books or, or what have you. Get it. It's Modern Reloading by Richard Lee, the first edition, the red book. Um, and... I looked up 44 Special, which is in the new version, which I also have, but not this particular set of loads. And I found loads for a 300-grain lead hardcast bullet for 44 Special. And this is the exact load data. Please, please look it up and write it down. Don't take the, the, the risk of putting something down like the wrong powder or wrong load by listening to me, but I am going to give the load data. 300-grain lead bullet, a standard large pistol primer, and between 9.8 and 11.5 grains of H227 powder. That was the lightest load for the 44 Special I could find. I loaded some up. I settled on 10 grains. Again, this is a published load. This is not something I cooked up out of thin air. This is a published load, and it's the safest way to play around with this. So I took 10 grains of powder, put it into my 18-inch barrel Marlin 1894 uh, 44 Magnum. 1894, I said 1895. So 1894 is the model number. Um, and I shot it, and it sounded like pap. It was so quiet that when I pulled the trigger, I could hear the hammer fall over the shot. So I could hear the click over the bang. That's how quiet it was. I went, well, this is cool, but how accurate is it? So I shot it at 25 yards. It was as accurate as the gun was with full power loads. Didn't have the same point of impact, but it was damn close. Certainly good enough to hit a deer in the vitals or in the head. So then I said to myself, self, how powerful is this? And thinking to myself, you know, there's probably better ways to finding out than shooting yourself in the foot and seeing if it hurts. I'll shoot something substantial. So I took a piece of 4x4, four four, which is 3.5 by 3.5, by the way. All wood dimensions are not what they say. So a piece of pressure-treated 4x4 four four lumber, and I set it up at 25 yards, and I shot it. And the round went clean through it. Oh, well, that's pretty impressive for how quiet this is. So I set up two of them. It went clean through two pieces of pressure-treated 4x4. Four four. That's seven inches of wood. 
You don't need a lot of expansion when the hole's already 44 caliber, and that's plenty of penetration on something like a deer, and it's dead quiet, and you don't need a special license for it. It's better, in my opinion, in many ways, than a suppressed gun, because I don't need permission or paperwork for it, and it's plenty powerful, and it's accurate out to about 50 yards, and then it just doesn't really shoot very well anymore. This could be done with a 38 Special. Um, so let's say you had the, that NEF 357 Magnum or the 357 Maximum Conversion. If you use a 38 Special in there, it's already very quiet. If you went to lo lighter loads for the 38 Special and heavy for caliber things like a 158 grain lead wad cutter, you would probably get a very quiet but quite powerful sh uh, round. I don't think you're looking at a deer gun anymore. Okay, But now you're looking at something that like you could smack the shit out of small game with without blowing it up. And it would be very, very quiet. And if you had that 357 maximum conversion, you could carry some of those. And you could carry you know, maximum or magnum. And you got something that takes anything from deer down. Right? And I would say the 357 maximum with a 180 grain flat point, um, I would shoot, I would shoot an elk with that at, you know, 50 yards or less. So you've got something that can take just about anything in North America at that point, uh, without really saying you're stretching anything. But could, you could go out with, pop that uh, 38 special into, and as long as you're taking head shots or front end shots, knock squirrels down with, and be quiet. And it certainly would be used as a defensive weapon, and that could be done with the lever action version of the Marlin that shoots the 38 slash 357. You're just not going to be putting maximums into that without some. You're just not going to do it. it it's not going to be suitable for a conversion. Um, you could do it with 45 Colt, lightest published loads for the heaviest bullets you can find in a rifle length barrel. You're going to get pretty much the same result. Uh, there's probably other cartridges you can do it with. You can certainly download things like 308 and 3006 and do all the stuff Richard Lee talks about. But the easiest thing I found are the handgun cartridges and long barrels with the lightest load with the heaviest bullet. And the 44 Magnum loaded as a 44 Special is awesome. And those who would say it's underpowered for a deer, let me tell you what. It has better muzzle velocity and a better weight ratio Taylor knockout formula than a 50 caliber ball out of a 50 caliber musket that people shoot deer with in primitive black powder season all the time. And it's nowhere near as loud. And you can load it with, dun dun dun, your $35 or less Lee loader. You just have to get the right dipper to go along with it to make those loads. So give that one a shot if you want to have something simple. Last one, just fun and something everybody can do with no uh, paperwork whatsoever. Go out and get yourself your choice of airsoft uh, guns. I like the 1911 clones because I shoot a 1911. Spring guns, cheap, easy, effective, quite powerful for what they are. We had some sitting around here. Uh, people shot at each other with them at the last event. I actually had a duel with uh, Nick Burtner, and I think I got him four times before he got me once. Um, I wasn't even sure at first before he shot at me that he was serious about shooting at each other, uh, and then I took him out. Uh, but you can do stuff like with that with them with you know safety protection, eye protection anyway, and rule, you know close up rules of engagement. A lot of people play with airsoft in a lot of ways, but one of the great ways to train with airsoft is to shoot reactive targets because it's fun, and to shoot kind of to the limit of their their accuracy level. So you know shoot until you can't consistently hit every single time anymore. 
Make that your distance for your size of target and practice at that distance. Now you're pushing the weapon to its limit, so you're producing, you're producing a situation where the shooter has to really be on to make the shot. It's a great way to train. One of the coolest reactive targets out there that I think everybody that's shot guns has probably shoot is you know soda and beer cans. The thing is, you shoot a soda or a beer can with a .22, you know, it tears it apart pretty good, or a BB or a pellet gun, it tears it apart. See, the thing if you shoot these things with an airsoft gun, they wouldn't. It beats them up pretty bad. It, it, it really does. If you put dirt in them, it, they hold together better, because when you shoot them, they, they, they have something to hold so they don't dent. But then they don't fall over, and come on, it's cool when they fall over. You know you like it when you're shooting something, and it falls over. And then there's no question whether or not the hit was solid or not. So if you were having a fun competition with somebody, you know, kicking back and, and shooting these, these tin cans, or aluminum cans more accurately, uh, it might be fun. You might even sit out in the evening and do something you would never do with a firearm, like and enjoy one you know, an adult beverage and discuss the day with a buddy and shoot these things because it's a plastic freaking gun shooting a plastic pellet. And, you know, I will not mix beer and firearms, not even one beer. But I'd have a beer or two and shoot an airsoft gun. If you wouldn't, don't do it. But you could. I'm just saying there's a lot of advantages to airsoft. You want to shoot in your backyard and you don't want the police to come, you, you can probably do it with airsoft, especially if you're smart about it. But, again, you got this beer can. What do you do to make the beer can into a long-term reactive target For your airsoft gun. Well, you get that foamy stuff that, like, if you want to make your house energy efficient, you get a can of this, and you take your, your, your wall plates off, and you seal it with foam, the foam sealer. You get it like Home Depot and Lowe's. You stick it in the can and fill it with that stuff. It stays lightweight, but it becomes rigid. You can make up five or six of these as targets, and target practice to your heart's content. And unless you're shooting really high-velocity, you know, gas-powered airsoft or something like that, or AEGs or uh, automatic electric guns, airsoft guns like that at close range, if you're pushing the limit of the gun with those, those things will last a great long time for you. You can knock a bunch of them down, have a great time, train, get better, spend very little money, and hey, guess what? If you set that up so like they're like inside a box or something, you can probably get most of your pellets back. Uh, on that note, if you're shooting airsoft uh, anywhere where you're not collecting them, make sure you're using the biodegradable ones so that you're not leaving plastic everywhere forever. Uh, they don't really cost any more. And in your airsoft guns, don't wet, waste your time with the .12 grain junk ones. Get the .2 grain ones, um, biodegradable, and you have a blast with those. So there you go. I mean, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15... Cool little fun tricks, tips, and projects to do with firearms, guns, airsoft guns, everything in between. A fun show for a Monday for a different spin on things. And uh, probably a couple extra things I threw in there as bonuses along the way that I didn't count in the 15. So uh, let me know what you, you know what you liked about today's show, questions about it, things you want to know more. If there's other fun shows like this, getting off some of the, 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 the government crap, and, and I love permaculture, but I know I can run away with that and do a little bit too much on the permaculture and homesteading. Uh, homesteading sometimes we need the variety into this. If there's something you'd like to hear about or know about or have like this in the future, let me know. If you have any questions on anything I said today, let me know. If you have any tips and tricks of your own, let me know. Don't send me an email. Put them in the show notes. Again, episode 1235, 1235 of the Survival Podcast. Go by the blog, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and make your comments in that episode. Love to hear from you. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough. 
or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. 